Ich heiße Ilsa Müller. Das ist meine Geschichte. Episode 3 Woman Part 1 He left clues. There were some clues in the recordings. Sifting through the recordings over and over again and documenting everything he said, dissecting every word, every sound, listening intently through a screech of feedback and interference, a blurry, fragmented story began to emerge on paper. It was convoluted. It was incomplete. We made assumptions. There were critical gaps. We pressed on. We listened harder. We pressed our ears to the fabric of space-time and hung on every broken syllable until some shard of cohesion gripped us. We rewound, and we listened again. In one broadcast, the man explains an encounter with a woman. He doesn't mention her by name, but his passion for her fights through the static and competes for the attention his broadcasts demand. Woman is sacred. The woman one loves is holy. He recites, taking from the pages of The Count of Monte Cristo, a story about a man falsely imprisoned after he is framed by a few of his envious friends and shipmates. Woman, he says, is sacred. He never once mentions the woman's name. In all of his broadcasts, in all of his many transmissions, he doesn't mention her name. Yet he talks more about her than anything else. He tells the fragmented story of proposing marriage to her by the river. He mentions the river by name, but it is impossible to make out what he is saying. He talks about the war, 
but there were no formal military engagements in 1963 by any European nation. He talks about a wedding ceremony to which they will invite all of their friends and family. As soon as the war is over, he promises. It seems from the transmissions that somewhere along the line something happened to his fiancée. She was involved in some kind of accident by that same river and did not survive. It seems that he was sent a letter while overseas, somewhere serving in a branch of the military, and this is how he was informed that she had died. The man must have been a soldier, although for which branch of whose military is unclear. He served, but it's unclear when. So, a man, a soldier, lost his fiancée. At some point he was captured, presumably a prisoner of war, and while in a cell without a door, had access to a two-way radio, which he used to communicate his story. At least that's what we presumed at the start. As we listened to the reels, rather than gaining confidence that we were getting closer to the truth, the questions grew. With every transmission, more confusion arose. Which war? Whose military? Who was the woman? Where was the prison? Who were his captors? Why was he given access to a radio? How did his prison have no door? We needed help, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to the beginning. Episode 3, Current, Part 2. Sasha Vasilikov had a son in 1933, the same year he opened his electronics shop in the basement of an apartment owned by a friend of his father. Business was decent, and Sasha actually earned a fair wage repairing old electronics and selling them at a discount to anyone who could afford them. As he did in his youth, each weekend he would travel to the city with his metal garbage can on wheels and buy broken radios and telegraphs and reel-to-reel -reel tape recording machines and some spare parts. He would wheel them all home and fix them. Unlike in his youth, as an adult it was possible for him to know he'd fixed a unit because he finally had electricity. Power flowed to his shop at last. During the summers, 
Sasha would spend his days repairing old radios in the shop while his son, Alexander, looked over his shoulder. Alexander, whom his father lovingly called Alexei, had been born with severe hearing loss. He was deaf in his right ear and had greatly diminished hearing in his left. Rather than attempt to find a sign language program, which Sasha couldn't have afforded anyway and was incredibly rare in Russia back then, he taught Alexei to read and write at a very young age. When Alexei couldn't hear or wasn't understanding his parents, they would pass notes back and forth on little scraps of paper. In the shop, during working hours in the summer, like a surgeon operating on a patient, Sasha would yell requests at his son. Phillips! Alexei would hand his father a Phillips screwdriver. Solder! Alexei would hand him the soldering gun and hold a line of solder in place. Alexei was an ideal apprentice and became as obsessed as his father with anything that had an on-off switch. By the time Alexei was eight years old, he was going on shopping expeditions with his father. He had his own little bucket with makeshift wheels on it. He would pick out a broken radio and knew what he needed in terms of replacement parts to fix it. He would buy his own resistors and capacitors and transistors from his allowance money, which he earned helping his grandmother hem pants like his father before him. He would repair his own radios, and his father allowed him to keep the profits when the radio sold in the shop, which he would spend on bubblegum, because even though he hated the taste, he liked the sound it made in his good ear when he chewed. Sasha taught his son how to keep track of his own portion of the business. Even before he'd learned arithmetic in school, Alexei was keeping his own accounting ledger. These were the happiest days Sasha and Alexei would ever know. And they wouldn't last long. War was coming. Episode 3 Collapse Mein Großvater hieß Johann Müller. Am 11. November 1979, an dem Tag meiner Geburt, lief er auf und ab vor dem Entbindungszimmer Nummer 524b der Freiburger Universitätsklinik. Er war ein gut aussehender Mann. My grandfather's name was Johann Müller. On November 11, 1979, the day that I was born, he was at the Freiburg University Medical Hospital, pacing the halls outside delivery room 524B. He was a very handsome, very sensitive man with jet black hair. He was always clean-shaven and had light blue-gray eyes that shined like polished glass marbles. My mother was alone in the hospital room as my father had disappeared eight months earlier after she told him she was pregnant with me. People used to feel bad about that and tell my mother, I'm so sorry. It must be so difficult without a husband. And she would always respond the same way. She would say, don't feel bad. I don't need one. As if she was referring to a toaster or a hammer. As mother tells the story, Giving birth to me was a horrible experience. I was born four weeks early, and in spite of being in a sort of rush to enter the world, I guess I wasn't ready to come out. Labor lasted 17 agonizing hours. When I finally arrived, I was 
stubborn, as my mother would say. I refused to breathe on my own. The doctors worked their magic, and finally, after what seemed like an eternity, my mother heard me cry from across the room. The first sound she ever heard from me, she called, Schmitzhaft aber wunderschön. She called my first cry. Tragic, yet beautiful. My grandfather, as the story goes, threatened to murder someone if he didn't get to meet his granddaughter soon. Wo ist sie? he yelled as he paced the halls. Where is she? He paced and paced until finally the doctor asked, Mr. Mueller, would you like to meet your granddaughter now? Grandpa ran into the room and shoved the nurses out of the way. My mother handed me to him. As mother says, he began to cry immediately. He started speaking to me in an old-fashioned dialect of German that my exhausted mother couldn't understand. Finally, he turned to my mother and asked, Wie heißt sie? What is her name? Trahliche Schönheit. Sad beauty, she said. My grandfather looked at me and then to my mother, then back to me. He kissed my forehead, mother says, and then he whispered, Nein, freudige Schönheit. No, happy beauty. Mother says his tears fell on my little head, which he wiped away with his thumb. My mother needed rest, and the nurses tried to shoo my grandfather from the room. He pushed past them and kissed my mother on the cheek. With a last look at me, before he reluctantly left the room, he whispered to my mother in German, the three of us against the world. My mother fell immediately asleep, and as she tells me, so did I as I lay in the bassinet by her bed. My grandfather left the hospital room and went to a small gift shop a half a mile walk from the hospital. He bought my mother and I each some fresh flowers. Small purple flowers, mother says, although she never saw them. On the way back to the hospital room, at 3.57 p.m. on November 11th, my grandfather suffered a heart attack and fell to the ground. The small purple flowers fell beside him. On the day I was born, moments after he held me safely in his arms, my grandfather died. I was 63 minutes old. My grandfather was 63 years old. His name was Johann Müller. And though I met him only once, I miss him with all my heart. Episode 3, Current, Part 3. In the summer of 1941, young Alexander Vasilikov turned eight years old and was regarded by his parents and teachers as a child prodigy in the discipline of electronics, math, and physics. In spite of his difficulties hearing, or perhaps because of them, he excelled in school and had many friends. He was prodigious in his studies and a very well-behaved young man. One month before his eighth birthday, his father, Sasha, asked him what he wanted as a gift. Nothing extravagant now, his father commanded in his thick Russian accent. Be prudent, he said. 
Be prudent. Будьте благоразумны. Он постоянно говорил нам это. Мне и маме. Александр Василиков. Будь благоразумен, Алексей. Никогда не будь расточителен. Помню, что отец всегда говорил так. Be prudent. He would tell us this all the time. My mother and me. Be prudent, Alexei. Never wasteful. Never. I remember father always saying this. If I said, Papa, I'm hungry, may I have another serving? He would sternly say, Be prudent, Alexei. If I asked, Can I stay up late tonight? Be prudent, Alexei. Be prudent. If I had a difficult time hearing, father would simply tap me on the nose and mouth the words, be prudent. I asked papa for two gifts for my eighth birthday. I wanted a shortwave radio and a reel-to-reel tape recorder. I didn't even mind if they were broken. I told father I would fix them myself. That's what I wanted. I thought it was very prudent. For my birthday, Papa gave me a brand new shortwave radio and a broken reel-to-reel recorder. Try as he might, young Alexei couldn't figure out what was wrong with the broken reel-to-reel recorder. He used all of the tools in his arsenal and, after days of fiddling, disassembling, and reassembling, he enlisted his father's help. Unfortunately, Sasha, after fiddling for a while, couldn't figure out how to fix his son's birthday present either. He promised Alexander he would replace it. He promised to get him a new one. Ничего, сказал я папе. Не беспокойся. Это было бы неблагоразумно. No, I told Papa. Don't worry about it. It wouldn't be prudent. Alexei brought the broken recorder home from the shop and placed it on his dresser as an anti-trophy of sorts, as a stark reminder that not everything is easily fixed. As will be described, through a series of truly unexplainable events, Alexei was eventually able to fix his unfixable machine, a machine that would become the key to unraveling the mystery of the transmissions. 70 years later. Either that, or the broadcasts were all part of a massive ruse, a trick perpetrated on an entire continent by one man who hoped, for some reason still unknown, to find fame through anonymity. Next time on Transmission. Transmission.